Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society, and what we can do to make them better. The world is complex and often difficult to navigate, but fortunately, it's also filled with kind and thoughtful people who spend their lives doing rigorous and fascinating work trying to understand it all. Yep, and we want to hear from those wonderful folks and discuss their work. We also hope to show how sometimes these issues that people want to describe with an oversimplified narrative are just a bit more complicated. On this show, we're not afraid to get into the weeds and to think deeply and carefully about complex topics. We are your guides, Manuel Galvan and Dr. Dylan Selterman. Both of us are psychologists. I, Manuel, uh, or Manny, am a third-year social psychology grad student at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I'm a faculty member at Johns Hopkins University. I study social and personality psychology. Now, both of us have been trying uh, to communicate scientific findings to the public in ways that hopefully help people understand the world better, and in part an evidence-based perspective that people can share with their friends and families and colleagues. I have a blog called thescienceofsocialproblems.com, and Dylan has a blog called The Resistance Hypothesis on Psychology Today. We really want to start a podcast so we can cover more topics and hopefully reach a broader audience of people who are just too busy to read a stack of academic articles, but want to also stay informed about what the evidence says about the issues of the day. On today's episode, we have invited Will Blakey. He's a post researcher here at UNC who works with Dr. Kurt Gray. On January 21st, 2022, Will and Kurt published a fascinating article, and so we brought Will to discuss it with us. So welcome, Will, and please introduce yourself. Yeah, so um, thanks for having me on uh, your new podcast. Uh, Manny is one of the only people that in, in my life that I've ever met after arguing with online first, um, so it's good to continue that tradition here. Um, but yeah, I'm uh, Will Blakey. I work with uh, Kurt Gray, and and we've been writing like a Substack newsletter about moral understanding, um, which basically just does um, recaps of moral psychology and. Um, and we kind of dive into like a moral conflict and try to provide prescriptions uh, and different ways of seeing the conflict uh, that may uh, promote uh, mutual understanding between competing groups. Um, but yeah, I mostly just uh, do social psychology research in a, a lab called the Deepest Beliefs Lab at UNC. Um, so a lot of our work revolves around different moral conflicts, political polarization, um, religious conflicts, things like that. So yeah. Happy to be on. Will, that's a great place to start. Do you want to say more about your kind of internet beef with many to start and how, <laughs> how you came to be friends after that? Because I think that's a really wonderful thing that you just said and something that a lot of people may not expect was possible to turn some kind of conflict online into a friendship and a collaborative relationship. So you want to say a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. So Manny has drifted in and out of my mute column on Twitter uh, <laughs> over time. But um, but generally, I do enjoy engaging with Manny, and I think he thinks through things uh, at uh, just a deeper level than um, most people who, you know, just kind of repeat platitudes and things like that. I think Manny, like, actually is pretty critical about um, his most of his ideas and uh, and yeah so like it was pretty seamless uh, as far as a transition into a personal relationship in person and stuff like that 
Yeah, Will, totally agree. It's been great getting to know you. So like you said, you have this this uh, blog where you try to expand. I would I, I perceive it as expand moral understanding from an evidence-based perspective, which is trying to get people to be um, more nuanced in their way that they perceive other people and moral issues. And you wrote this great article about concept creep, about evil, and we're just going to try to walk through it. So I think where we should start is maybe in case the audience hasn't read the article, which we're going to have it in the show notes, you can go ahead and click the link there and you'll be able to get to it. There's, it is on Substack, but it's not, you don't have to pay a subscription fee or anything to read it. So everybody can just go ahead and read it. But if you'd like to just give us the broad strokes of what the article is kind of arguing, um, and then we can start going through it. Um, I guess the article starts with this like strange phenomenon that uh, everyone is kind of a villain of someone else. Um, so it doesn't really matter like who you are. Or, uh, there's really good people out there, um, and those people are someone else's villain. And it doesn't matter whether how much they give to charity and how much activism they do in their community and um, all these like wonderful beautiful things we just have this tendency to um, villainize all sorts of different groups um, so we kind of go in a roundabout way to get at this problem of villainization um, but we explain it through this like broader societal trend and these like basic psychological processes um, so the broader cycle uh, the broader like societal trend that we uh, examine is basically that like the world has seen a lot of progress over time um, so you know we go through like uh, just general material progress human like welfare um, global poverty is just like through the floor um, children mortality is is super low now comparatively education is proliferating people are literate now um, and like democracy is spreading all these great trends um, and so that's our societal trend and then the the psychological trend that we examine is is this idea of concept creep um, and specifically prevalence induced concept creep um, which basically is the idea that harm related concepts are spreading the less they, they occur in the real world so we see more harm um, the less that it's actually occurring in the real world it's an interesting paradox where where the world is getting better but we perceive it as as worse um, that y'all point out and kind of orient the conversation around um, and try to come up with like, why is that happening? <laughs> why is this par paradox occurring? Right. So, yeah, it's it's interesting because my like natural disposition is is um, is more relaxed and everyone's kind of freaking out. And I want people to like uh, calm down. But I, I think this is a good uh kind of an ideological Turing test and trying to understand what, uh, like, how come our cultural zeitgeist isn't like things are getting so much better around the world and there's like all this beautiful, wonderful progress happening? Well, it's because there are like real um, setbacks that we're, that we're currently experiencing with a pandemic and a democratic recession and these, these real um, n negative trends. But... Uh, uh, but yeah, so it, it's an example of um, we write about moral understanding, but it's kind of an internal process as well. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, you kind of point out, like, so this idea of concept creep, you kind of point out that the uh, the list of things that we deem harmful kind of just keeps expanding. Um, but what I, I've heard this, this critique of concept creep before, and what I really liked about your article is you kind of articulate how that's, there's a bad version of that and there's a good version of that, right? So the bad version of that is like, for example, the, the, exist, the example y'all use, and, and I think is in the, the broader literature too, um, is the idea of bullying, right? So bullying is a word that had a specific meaning and it had specific context, uh, factors that mattered. So it had to be repetition. There had to be a power imbalance um, with the way, the way that bullying works. But now people just see any act of peer aggression, um, which could just be simple, a one-time instance of harassment against somebody you've never harassed before as a child, which kind of, if you're on a schoolyard, that kind of thing just happens from time to time, is being labeled as bullying, which, but, but then that makes it hard to specifically ad- uh, address bullying, which is a far bigger problem than simply um, harassment. So it's kind of obscuring the expansion of the concept of bullying has obscured like our ability to address bullying as a social problem, which is kind of a bad thing. But then the other example that you point out um, is PTSD, right? So now veterans are coming back from war and they're being treated with more respect after suffering from psychological trauma. And that's kind of an expansion of the idea of trauma. It's not just like your leg got blown off or something. It's also that you're, you might just be suffering with um, the psychological trauma of coming back from war and that that's kind of a meaningful and useful um, expansion of the concept because now we're being more morally um, good you, you, we might argue towards veterans who are coming back which I think like just from a, a writing standpoint I think bringing up veterans was kind of a good choice because that's something that like everybody can rally behind like treating our veterans better uh, from like a uh, trying to share moral understanding with different like opposing ideological camps yeah yeah it's really uh it's really interesting how these these concepts have kind of a double-edged sword um when they move outwards and upwards um so another article that's really interesting that someone wrote about this is Cass Sunstein and he writes about it in uh, a law review article and he kind of details another like really good trend which is like um the original amendment against discrimination on the basis of sex was did not include sexual harassment at all. Um, but over time, this concept of discrimination on the, against the basis of se- on on the basis of sex has expanded out to include, um, y- you know, not just not hiring women, but also like, uh, you know all sorts of inappropriate lewd behavior that we can all rally around and condemn. Um, so largely what like concept creep, what we suggest is a reflection of is it's just moral progress. Um, so uh, moral progress has, uh, is not without downsides, but yeah, moral progress is absolutely something to, to cheer for. So it's, it's a good thing that, um, despite the world getting so much better, um, that it offends us that people go hungry or um, don't have access to clean drinking water. Um, Yeah, so like that's a really, really impressive and good movement that's happening. Um, And it's not something to lament or claim that it's soft or something like that. So, yeah. Right, and I feel like we've done a good job just like 
form, like reformulating the argument for the audience. Um, I just want to point out one other thing, which is you guys kind of make like a clever point, which is if you see concept creep as harmful, you're kind of also contributing to the creep of harm, right? Which which I thought was a really interesting point that you make. Um, that yeah, if it, I think you relate it to somebody coming back from fighting the Nazis, and if you're going to tell that person like one of the big things that you're concerned about is like the the creep of harm it's like that seems like a minor issue in comparison to what they just felt uh dealt with um and so i I thought that was like a really clever like way you kind of mention how people who are obsessed with this idea of concept creep is a really harmful concept are also contributing to that very thing that they're criticizing yeah so yeah that's like the whole idea is that um is that when concepts creep, we see more harm, and necessarily uh, we have to see a villain to accompany that harm. So um, this kind of creates the culture war where you and everyone else you know are a villain. Um, and um, yeah, so uh, I think like it's really a broader concept than like just liberals or or anything like we one example that we point out is um that republicans see uh like covid restrictions in australia as being like some sort of concentration camp um but you can only see that through this lens of like exceptional uh, historical freedom um that that people that Republicans generally would acknowledge, but they don't see it uh, as that way. They see like slight regressions as being tyranny and alarm bells in people's heads go off. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I think for me, one of the most interesting points in this line of research and in your article is that things seem to be getting better. Like you said, worldwide, we have had some setbacks, but overall things are improving in the way that we would want. And yet people feel worse. And a part of that is this process of trying to find villains everywhere to, and you, you hinted at that a little bit that when we, when we see moral wrongdoing or we see harm, we have this kind of template in our minds. There must be a victim and there must be a villain. Can you talk a little bit more about that kind of, I think you call it a moral typecasting. What does that look like exactly? Yeah. So, uh, moral typecasting is, um, it's not my framework, but it's Kurt's framework, uh, the co-author. And, um, he came up with this idea back in, I think like 2008 or something like that with his advisor, Dan Wagner, but moral typecasting is basically, it's a heuristic for, um, how we perceive people in our lives. So, um, when we look at the world, we don't see just like all these random array of accidents and mishaps. And we, we put people into these like relatively fixed roles in that, uh, Manny's the villain and, uh, maybe I'm the victim and Dylan, you're the hero. Um, (laughs) so everybody has the specific role to play in our moral, in the moral stories that we tell. Um, and, the, the problem is, is that these categories are pretty fixed and we see people as having this like moral essence that doesn't really change over time, um, which, which is pretty flawed when you think about it. Like we're all kind of some uh, mix of good, evil, suffering and all of the above. Uh, so it's kind of weird to like categorize people as as and, and we have a much uh 
greater tendency to do this the less we know people i think like um adam grant has like a funny chart about this and basically on the uh, uh, x-axis it's like the more i know people and then on the y-axis it's uh the more I villainize them, but basically, as it's like a straight down line of um, the more you get to know someone, the more like the less villainizing you can do of them. Um, so, yeah, we kind of call this idea the Hitler effect, which is basically that like uh, the more victims we perceive through this process of concept creep, seeing more harm, we see more victims. Um, we necessarily are going to see more Hitlers. So. Um, you know, every detainment center is going to look like a concentration camp in a world where harm is sensitive. Um, and in the same way, uh, COVID restrictions are going to look like concentration camps as well. So I think this is an interesting way of looking at morals and ethics and social perception. And I think maybe there's a clue here with how we can kind of disentangle the good concept creep and and the less good concept creep. Because in the example that Manny gave with PTSD, there isn't really a villain there. I mean, people went to war and they became traumatized. And now we are recognizing that problem in the world that we need to help fix. Whereas with the other types of concept creep, we are kind of artificially looking for Hitlers everywhere. And we're seeing we're seeing a lot of villains in the world and we're seeing a lot of harm that we didn't necessarily see before. Uh, I'm wondering what both of you think about that idea. That, that is interesting. So the, in the case of bullying, there's a bully, right? And so you're expanding, when you expand the definition of bullies, of bullying, you're creating a lot more bullies as a consequence. If you're expanding the definition of PTSD, you're, you're creating more victims, you could argue, because now more people have PTSD and that's kind of victimizing. Um, but you haven't necessarily created a bunch more um, evil people creating that, that victim. Right. Uh, um, circumstance. Um, now, of course, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea that like, well, maybe like the politicians who send people off to war, you know, are, are part of the problem. Right, blah, blah, right, blah. So, right. And, and of course, people can point at also the uh, enemy combatants, right, as like actual, I mean, as enemies, right? So so those can be the villains in that story, I suppose. But um, I, I I think there's, yeah, I, I, th- what you're saying, Dylan, makes sense to me. Uh, Will, what do you think? Yeah, so uh, this is uh, kind of the idea of, of moral typecasting is that it's it's not something that we uh, that we have to do, but it's something that we tend to do, and that we like. It's a framework for seeing the world, but it's it's not something that we have to jump right into. So I, I kind of disagree with the idea that um, yeah, like PTSD or uh, like um, sometimes it's useful to have a villain framework, like. Mm. Um, for the case of sexual harassment, for example, like yeah. we didn't see the world in these terms until we started narrating it. And in terms of like Harvey Weinstein is the villain and these, uh, this, these ladies on the casting couch, like this is, this is the framework that we need to approach it with. And yeah. now we can have more and more progress. So it's not that it's always a bad thing, but it's more that like we overgeneralize 
generally. So uh, especially like with people online and just large, large groups of people, seeing them as like complete villains, especially like half the country or um, whatever cultural group you tend to demonize, they're probably more than that. They're probably... Um, not, you know, sexual harassers and abusers, um, despite what QAnon proposes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. That's a great, that's a great example. So sometimes it can be useful to have a villain framework in order to make moral progress. Right. Yeah. So the problem is that we like tend to see, uh, is that we tend to see our villains in this like one through this one dimensional lens, um, but it helps to to understand that um, that even like the worst villains that we can conceive of, which is often our political opponents or whatever cultural group we don't like, um, they often are the way they are because of a result of um, their experiences of personal victimhood. So like one of the um, one of the arguments or the like cultural references that we use in the piece is the, um, uh, well, I guess we didn't end up using it actually, but it's something that I wrote about a while ago, but the Joker movie does a great job of this, of like taking you into this like broken past of, of one of our villains. And it speaks to this human tendency that we enjoy that in some way. We enjoy complicating our views of, of the people we despise. Um, the, the fact that these movies are so popular that, that like give all these villains, these like traumatic backstories. Um, I think it's really interesting, uh, that we like, that we like this idea of, um, seeing people as more complicated than pure evil. Um, and I think we can apply that framework to a lot of these situations. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's other stories like that too, where you have the backstory of Darth Vader and Voldemort as similarly tortured in their youth and then growing up to be these kind of demonic figures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like evidence too. There's a lot of evidence suggests that that's like actually how, uh, dark triad stuff works too, is that like, um, like child abusers are kind of comparatively more likely to be abused themselves. And that's not to say that they are like more likely on average than not to abuse their children. But that's like a careful argument that a lot of people nitpick about. But like, And then there's all this stuff about um, like intergenerational trauma and the way that people pass down antisocial coping mechanisms to their children. I just think that, yeah, complicating this narrative of pure evil is, is, is useful for a framework. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so when I was reading... Uh, Curtin Wegner's 2009 paper on moral typecasting and also when I was reading y'all's uh, Substack article I was just trying to think well so what are the alternatives right like can we name we have a we have a name for moral typecasting and I think it helps to identify that this is a thing that can be overgeneralized I think something that um, maybe you know it would be good to to talk through is like what's an alternative way we can think about these problems is there a name for it um, and I think one thing that I, that comes to mind for me is the sociological perspective, right? It's the idea, and I think this is very consistent with what you're saying, but that systems and context and circumstances um, of many different types, so economic, social, whatever, different dynamics create, you know, these people, like create tendencies and attitudes and beliefs and behavior within people. And so when you look at the abuser 
that is actually just an emergent property of the context that they're in, right? People don't, aren't inherently abusers. People aren't inherently anything. Um, a human just inherently in an, in an asocial environment just will die because there's no human else to, to exist with. And especially, you know, modern humans who kind of just rely on uh, the, the structure of society in order to live. So I think this sociological perspective is really uh, important. I mean, we were talking about movies right now. One that I think does a really good job um, talking uh, like storytelling from a sociological perspective is Wally. It's kind of an older film, but um, if you remember the movie Wally, there's not a bad guy in that movie. Like, if anything, the ship is, but the ship represents the system, right? That that perpetuates itself um, and is like maintaining the um, like really terrible circumstance that everybody in that situation finds themselves in. And so it's uh, it I, I do think that that's kind of the for me that's a really helpful perspective um, for understanding this. You see it uh, the the issue that you find uh, people talking about the most is what's uh, systemic racism, right? So the argument from systemic racism is that uh, a systemically racist system doesn't require racists in order to create a racially unequal outcome. So in some sense, there's not a villain in that story. There's just a bunch of people enacting a social role, which gives rise to racism um, and doesn't require anybody to be a, a villainous racist. Um, I'm just curious if you've thought about this uh what what could be the alternatives and if you feel like the kind of sociological or systemic perspective is helpful in in moving us away from moral typecasting hmm. yeah yeah i think it's a it's kind of the fundamental attribution error in a sense that we tend to um like for our own personal uh failings we attribute that to external causes and then for others we attribute that to internal causes i know that concept has kind of evolved over time but um but i think that that's like a bad way of of viewing the world so if we can like try to see um I think if we can try to flip the um, the external side to to seeing people as more like culpable victims or like s- striving for something and failing and um, and yeah, I think I, I like the systemic idea. I worry that like it's hard for people to see systems in uh, like as being like part of Kurt Gray's work is that we, um, we anthropomorphize corporations and, and different institutions in our world so that we like, uh, talk about them as though they hear things and they see things and they can perceive things. And there's kind of like a, it would be interesting to, to see if we could distinct to make a distinction between that and people inside those institutions. But I think it's really hard, um, for our brains to do that. Uh, so like, I don't know if externalizing it to, to the, like externalizing the pure evil to the system is a good idea. I think like systems and institutions are complicated too, and they don't have purely bad incentives. I don't know, but yeah, sometimes they do. And yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. That's a complicated question, but yeah, yeah I think appreciate. you're getting into an interesting territory that I thought of when I when I was coming up with this like alternative which is that people are still not comfortable with the sociological perspective either right like so you you mention or somebody will mention systemic racism and people still perceive that as framing an enemy 
even if you're not explicitly doing it. Right. So so now so then the criticism will be, well, now you're saying everyone's racist. And it's like, well, yes and no. Like there's a kernel of truth in there, which is that we all exist in this like system that gives rise to racist outcomes. And and so in some sense, like people, everyone is racist, quote unquote, but just not the racism that creates a villain. Right. So like most people are not villainously racist. They exist within a racist structure that like gives rise to certain attitudes and beliefs that are consistent with like kind of a racist perspective. But ultimately, that's the thing that's so hard, though. It's hard to get people to um, be forgiving of people for just simply have been being born in a racist culture. Like you didn't choose that at, at some level. And so you're not I think you mentioned culpability, like at some point people are not culpable for the fact that they lack free will and exist in a society that gives rise to certain tendencies. Um, At the same time, like, I think you made a good point before, like, we still have to hold, I think something that maybe people when they're listening to us have this conversation, they're like, yeah, but how are you going to hold people accountable? Right. Because on some level, we still have to hold the Harvey Weinsteins of the world accountable for their actions. We still have to hold, you know, the, the, the corporate the corporate leaders who, you know, conceal that climate change has been happening for 30 years like that. Those people have to be held accountable. And I, I'm sympathetic to that uh, as well. I just don't think we need to call most people evil in order to do that. Yeah, Manny, that's a good point. And I think part of the difficulty is we're still using the same words to describe individual kind of, you know, the, what we would normally think of as pure evil. Like there's still racism, the old fashioned, like explicit racism, and there's still white supremacists. So mm-hmm. if we're using those terms to describe that and also the more systemic problems, now mm-hmm. it can be a bit confusing. It can be, well, wait, which which one are you referring to? Are you referring to the swastika or are you referring to the war on drugs? And that's where I think a lot of people can get thrown off because we're using, in a sense, the same words. So maybe that aspect of concept creep that's throwing people off is part of our language. It's part of our linguistic indicators that are getting muddled. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, one of the, one of the, cre- the, the concepts that has crept, uh, according to like the original Nick Haslam paper is prejudice. Uh, and so that we, you know, we do see like, as racism has become socially ostracized in polite society, people are, um, seeing l- like, um, less like objectively racist and intent things as as racist or as being prejudiced Um, and this is kind of like where the term microaggressions comes from Um, and I think that's like a better uh, way to describe um, to describe uh, these like small acts uh, is that they're like micro and that that they um, or like a faux pas or like a misstep or something like that Um, but yeah, I think the problem is too, like, uh, it, you know, I think it's fun to like think through why these problem, why these terms are causing 
uh, turmoil. And I think that like when you say systemic racism, people don't see that as being like some system out there. They see that as being like my country and my people and me and my family and like my generations of family back behind me and my ancestors, like we are the racists. And that's like where people feel victimized in a sense. And then there's kind of a, retribution cycle that goes on there but yeah i think i think that that uh dylan you make a good point that there would be uh some benefit to some sort of international referendum on a new word for what we're experiencing now um because the distinctions are hard to make and um and yeah i don't know it's not that it necessarily like people are villainizing people in this conversation but people are certainly feeling like victims which creates a bad uh example of communication for sure you know will uh i'm curious if you have any just final thoughts in terms of like how do you think people should behave differently given the ideas you explored in this article um I'm not sure I have so much to say about uh, how they should behave, but I guess like as far as how they see um, groups of people in the world, um, I I think like deliberately complicating your views about them. Amanda Ripley has this kind of great idea of like, you know, she she explores um, like this this term called high conflict. And when we... uh, we just like can't even fathom why the other side would believe what they believe, um, and uh, one of the best ways to to explore um, m- more about the depths of other people is to just like ask questions about them uh, directly. So um, if you do, I guess this is a kind of a behavior, but if you do happen to encounter somebody from that group, um, I would try to like ask questions that complicate. Uh, like your narrative. So um, ask people what they want the other side to believe about them or what do you want the other side to believe about you? Um, Things that kind of like get into why... um, why they believe what they believe and and just trying to understand more. Um, Yeah, I guess that's my solution. Sounds good. Um, So we want to wrap up our interview by just learning a little bit more about you and and your uh, work and your research interests. So, uh, Will, if you could just share a little bit about, you know, you're a, I I hope I said this correctly earlier, you're an undergrad, or I'm sorry, you're a post-bac researcher in in Kurt Gray's lab. And, uh, you know, you can talk about your work in Kurt Gray's lab, but also just like, what are your research interests more broadly? What are your plans for, for, you know, after this position in Kurt Gray's lab? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I came in through social psychology through the back door a little bit. Um, so I went to an evangelical Christian school for my undergrad degree. Um, so I have kind of like a, uh, a unique perspective as far as social psychologists go. And then I worked in politics, uh, as in like campaigns, political campaigns for a couple of years in 2018. Um, <clears throat> sorry about that. Uh, so yeah, I think like, I kind of had a up close experience with um, people who felt really victimized and really demonized uh, in a lot of ways. And I saw that those perceptions were in turn creating um, a lot of villains on the other side. Uh, so I want to uh, do a PhD and learn more about um, uh, 
how we can uh, help groups see each other as um, less of this pure evil narrative. So, um, so yeah, like a lot of the stuff that we write about in these articles is uh, is like central to the things that I've experienced and my identity. So it's really cool. Um, and I'm excited to, you know, work more and learn more about, um, some of these processes. I'm like in the process of designing a website, uh, for like all my, to collaborate all the few things that I've written. But, um, but in the meantime, like just on Twitter, I'm on Twitter at Blakey will, um, you'll catch me there arguing with Manny and, um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I don't have a whole lot of things I've written, uh, yeah, uh, the Substack, uh, moralunderstanding.substack.com. Um, that's a great place to follow some of the stuff that I write on like a monthly basis, but yeah, that's about it. Something I want to end uh, most conversations with and I want to end this conversation with is a question I've I've asked a couple times as like a far too uh, serious icebreaker, um, which is, you know, imagine you're standing in uh, another dimension and you, you're, you're you're looking at an array of dials, all of which adjust something about human nature. And some of the dials are huge things like um, like cognitive biases that affect like all humans and just really affect human nature. The other one is like some of them are super small and they like influence um, to what extent people lose their keys. You know what I mean? So that's that's the array of like dials you have in front of you. It's almost infinite. Um, and you have the opportunity to move one dial up or down and you can just increase something, some tendency of human nature or you can decrease some tendency of human nature and it can be as big as you want or as small as you want. What would you do in that scenario? That's a really good question. Dang. Uh, I think... Hmm. I think I would probably choose, like... Uh, like, laughing or jokes or more uh, humor. Whatever the humor dial is, I think I would turn it... Uh, as far to the to the right as I could. Um, <laughs> so, These go to eleven. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that uh, generally that's like been one of the most enjoyable, pleasant part of my life is just laughing and enjoying time with my friends. So, um, so yeah, that's my that's a good question. But yeah, that's my answer. Wow, Dylan, that was a great interview with Will. Um, really glad he joined us on the first episode. And I feel like his his uh, article with Kurt is really appropriate given what we're trying to do with the podcast. And so I think what we're going to do here at the end, uh, after the interview, is just do a little bit of a debrief, talk more about the ideas that we we were discussing there, but then also kind of try to wrap it into what we want to do with the podcast. Um, and maybe elaborate a little bit more on some of the points we were making. Yeah, sounds great, Manny. Um, so one thing that we didn't get to in the conversation is just um, how people perceive villains in history versus now. And so I think somewhere in their article, they kind of make the argument, and I think I can read the quote here. Um, why do we see so much villainy in the world? Um, there's always been villains in the world, but they haven't. we haven't always been so quick to use Hitler to describe other Americans. And uh, I think there's definitely a truth to that. You know, villains in the past, it seems like, used to encompass 
entire continents and countries and racial groups and religious sects, right? Like there was always been war between, um, it must, you know, Muslims versus Catholics or um, blacks versus whites in the United States um, or any, you know, country, uh, you know, where they're just constantly fighting with each other. And, and I suspect that if you go back through history, the people who were fighting in a war against what other country, they just hated everybody. All of those people were villains, right? Um, or, or maybe not. I mean, I, ultimately, I guess this would be an interesting question to bring to a historian and look through some historical texts to see how uh, people were viewing people in the past. What I think is interesting now is that villains are more common um, in, in different ways, though. So now we're our villains are not entire continents or countries, All, you know, you know, sidebarring that, like, of course, there's always going to be like people who are still fighting the same villains as we've always had through history. There's always going to be like major racists and people who are xenophobic and they just hate entire groups. But generally speaking, like our our opponents are ideological in nature and our um, villains are cultural groups. Uh, and in some sense, and we were talking about this in our conversation with Will also, that your villain might be a system, right? It's not even a, it's a collection of humans doing a particular uh, thing within a con- uh, the con the a construct which is like a corporation or it's a, a, a society you know people have a problem with the government and the american government not so much the american people um, which i think is like an interesting it seems like a moral advance but there's also still the opportunity to do this moral typecasting there's still this opportunity to see villains everywhere yeah and what Will was saying, and I, I'm familiar with with Kurt's research on this as well, that there's this template we use whenever we see something that feels morally wrong. It's like, okay, we we should probably find a villain and a victim here. And it it's interesting that Will frames this as perhaps, you know, a bad thing. That's not the right way to think about morals and ethics because it's overly simplistic and it dehumanizes people when what we really want to do is to look for kind of root causes. Like what what created this system? What created this person's beliefs? Why do they think the way they do? Is there room for common ground? And that I think ultimately feels better. So that's why I like connecting this idea with the kind of progress paradox that we were talking about before. Things have gotten better, but we feel worse. And we are, along with this idea that we're feeling worse, we're looking for and perhaps finding in our minds, we're finding more villains everywhere. And it also, I'm, I'm curious whether our definition of villain has changed or if it's the same and we're just finding more of them. And the last point that I wanted to bring up is that it, it strikes me that this is something that goes along with a heightened maybe neuroticism or distress about the world. And in fact, I I looked at some of Nick Haslam's articles on concept creep, and there is some evidence for that. There's some evidence that the people who score high in neuroticism are more likely to have expanded definitions of things like harm and trauma and prejudice. So it, it, it seems like there is at least some evidence connecting this idea of poor emotional stability 
or poor mental health with this kind of thinking. Yeah, and I do want to spend a little bit of time thinking through this um, argument that we are indeed like living in um, like the like a, the most peaceful, best time. Like we're really in this unprecedented new uh, area or, or time period where things are better than ever. And on some basic level, that's clearly true. And I think, you know, I attribute most of that to scientific advancement, right? Like we are living in a time where they mass produced a vaccine to address a uh, global pandemic within two years. Like it is on some level, it's just undeniable. We are living in a fantastic time of unbelievable resources and um, capacities that society has never even dreamt of in the past um so on some level that's clearly true um but you know the 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 person i attribute this argument which is probably many many people have made this argument but i think the person who stands out the most is steven pinker in his book um angels of our nature he kind of makes a 300 page 400 page arguments uh basically are outlining that we are in this upward trajectory and everybody is doing better than ever before um of course like his work has been critiqued by anthropologists like particularly around like is warfare and mortality higher in the past than it is today and people take issue with the way that he kind of cherry picks some of the data at least from their perspective uh, maybe it would be a cool topic to do uh, eventually yeah definitely um, on whether you know where warfare and, and mortality was significantly different in the past but like even just setting aside that possible um, you know uh, misrepresentation of the anthropological evidence. Um, we can also just talk about how today we're kind of facing existential risks that we might not have faced in the past. I mean, we so many different countries have nuclear weapons. Climate change is this like um, inevitable consequence of the way that modernity has shaped the planet and it's a uh, and the ecosystem. Um, and so those are are interesting new uh, ways that we are. Yes, we're doing better than ever. We also are facing these interesting existential risks. And I think the the other thing that I'll flag, and this is very relevant to my research with Keith Payne, Keely Muscatel, and plenty of other social psychologists who study this kind of thing, is that on some level, humans don't care about the objective reality. What's important yeah. is perceived and relative differences yeah. between people. And now those relative differences are more pronounced than ever. Right, like in the past, you didn't, you couldn't watch a television, the television show, if you were a serf, you know, working on some kingdom's land, uh, on some king's land, you couldn't watch a television show of their life and see how much better they had it over you. I mean, at the end of the day, you kind of just saw your little neck of the woods, and things seemed okay potentially. Nowadays, that you're constantly bombarded with the message of everybody else who has more than you, and so. While I do, I think that that, that's another component here um, that that is uh, present in why people might seem unhappier now than ever. It's because we live in this massive, globalized, um, very, um, very visible levels of inequality and disparity between people. Um, I know that I don't have health care. Well, I I do as a grad student. But like if I'm a person who doesn't have health care, I know I don't. I know I can't go to the doctor. And then I see everybody else who is doing better than me capable of doing that and that creates a certain kind of psychological turmoil um that i don't i think is distinct from the harm uh the creeping notion of harm like um there's another 
factor coming on uh, coming out here and i i think uh it's not mentioned in the article but it's not explicitly said that like nothing else right, is going right. on right they're, they they leave open the possibility that there are other factors in play yeah that's a great point uh so what what other thing that stood out to me in this line of research is how we measure concept creep and how we measure perception of harm and it seems like in most of the literature here most of the science what we're really talking about is a linguistic analysis and archival data and it focuses mostly if not entirely on english words so i am curious to know if this trend that we're seeing would emerge in other languages or if this is mainly an english-speaking world phenomenon and maybe if there is a way to tie this in with behavioral measures as well I like the archival data and the linguistic analysis. I don't think that it's limited. I think that it just would be interesting because I wonder if with the increase in declarations of harm and violence and trauma, whether people are acting in a way that is consistent with this. Like if things really are so bad now, with respect to harm. Wouldn't we be seeing more of this kind of extreme behavior? Because you could argue that actually we're seeing less of it. Uh, we're, we're seeing less violence in the world, especially political violence relative to, you know, a few centuries or, or a few, even a few decades ago. So I guess I'm wondering what this is really about and if this is something that we can only really see in the way people talk or in the way people write and not necessarily in other ways. Right. And and if it is simply or primarily, I should say, a, a linguistic, um, you know, phenomena, then that does undermine the concern about the harm of the phenomena, right? Like if it's, it's, it's purely linked to, um, you know, people, the way that they talk, but it doesn't actually result in any kind of behavior out in the real world. Um, then it's something to think about and be concerned about, but maybe not to the extent that, uh, some people who talk about concept creep, um, would have you believe. I think one of the, there's one of the thing that I find very, uh, challenging about this conversation in general is that, um, the other, factor here that that is so um so correlated with the concept creep phenomena is is social media and the existence of the internet and new forms of communication that are constantly proliferating and um taking away take you know uh conquering our attention span more and more and so i feel like um of course it's primarily linguistic analysis we are primarily we're like engaging in linguistic exchange now more than ever right we're constantly on a social media website um, and we're just sitting at home and we're, and, and that's, that's the means by which we communicate with one another. Um, and so I, I guess it is a good thing that it hasn't led to, uh, any kind of, uh, severe negative consequences, at least, you know, from our analysis right now, we always, you know, on this podcast admit that we could be wrong about something and we, we welcome a viewer or a audience member to reach out to us and, and try to articulate, why we're wrong on this point but um yeah i, I agree with you it seems to be mostly a yeah and, and i i take phenomenon. your point about social media and how especially with a, a a platform like twitter where we're 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 firing off lots of linguistic 
stuff, lots of lots of that content all the time, and it's very fast, and there's a lot of it. But then again, I'm looking at some of the data from this line of research, and this is summarized in Will and Kurt's essay, where they do a Google Books and psychology text analysis, and they can clearly document the rise in harm words dating back to the 1970s, at least, if not further back than that. So this is something Mm -hmm. that I think very clearly predates social media, although it is happening on social media as well. I think this is one of the reasons why people look at social media and they say that it's causing so many problems in society, but you can see other ways in which the same phenomenon is existing in other parts and clearly in a way that predates social media by several decades at least. And I also wonder to what extent is concept creep something, with regards to harm at least, something that is manifesting in our field, in psychology, if this is something that we are as a discipline, as a a field of researchers and scholars and, and scientists, if we are experiencing this creep in our minds and using it in our research and then that kind of spills over into the general public or if these things are happening side by side and we're just kind of picking up on societal trends and using them more in our scholarship but i i wonder and this is an argument that i've heard from some other scholars including john height who's done some work in morals and ethics and he kind of argues especially in liberal academic circles that we see morality mainly in terms of harm and suffering and injustice and perhaps not as much these other types of moral concerns and again this is probably something we'll talk about more in a future episode but uh, I, I like the idea that it's good to expand our horizons into other types of morals and ethics which have always been around they've always existed in cultures all over the world and still today but maybe in the ivory tower in academia in liberal social science research we focus too much on harm and that particular set of moral concerns yeah it's interesting um to to think of the differences in how liberals and conservatives perceive harm so kurt's done other work on the theory of what he calls dyadic morality and he basically argues that um Harm is actually the the central focus of, right. of morality across across all like ideological groups. Like everybody is perceiving harm. It's just that we perceive harm in different situations, right? So, um, a lot of so some of his work even finds that even victimless mor- immoral acts, right, um, are implicitly associated right. with perceived harm. And he uses the there's kind of the Kaniska triangle analogy. So that's where you have like three circles on the, the corners of uh, a, a, a triangle that you actually, there's no triangle there, but because those three circles are there, they're kind of like Pac-Man's three different Pac-Man's sitting at the, where the corners would be. You kind of see the triangle there anyway. And he says that that's, that's a similar, that's a, an analogy for how we perceive um, harm, even in circumstances where there, where there's no obvious version of harm. Um, 
and also that different moral communities assert harm at different times. So if you're a liberal, you may just not see the harm that results from impurity, but a conservative would, right? So that there is some negative that comes from leading an impure life, quote unquote. And this is why you'll see, see like, um, you know, liberals will say, well, that's a victimless circumstance. So a good example is homosexuality, right? There's, there's no, nobody's being hurt by allowing two consenting adults to be in a homosexual relationship. And uh, conservatives will argue, well, no, there is a harm to society or to the institution of marriage or, and so often liberals and conservatives are not having the same argument, right? Like one, liberals are saying there's no harm here. And conservatives are saying, yes, there is. And we're just yeah. talking past each other because that's kind of an impasse. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it is interesting. Kurt argues that um, liberals have a very narrow conception of harm um, and identify more circumstances where there are no victims and therefore there's no harm and therefore there's no immorality. Um, and that conservatives have broader, uh, broader conception of harm that, that encompasses more social dynamics and, and implicates more people in, in being involved in a harmful uh, situation. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up this kind of liberal and conservative way in which people perceive harm. And certainly with regards to concept creep, this is something that we have a lot of evidence for on both sides. Maybe a nice example of horseshoe theory, so to speak. Uh, I, 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 uh, pulled two examples that stood out to me as pretty obvious uh, examples of concept creep, but maybe you disagree or maybe some of our listeners might take issue. I found uh, one from the 2020 presidential primary. This is the uh, Democratic primary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, there, there's a little uh, summary of this on a Vox.com article, but I remember seeing this live in the debate when the CNN host Nia Malika Henderson uh, accidentally, it seemed, mispronounced the name of one of the people that they had on a question panel, uh, Shia Diamond. I think the host pronounced her, her name um, Shea Diamond uh, accidentally. And Diamond responded by saying that it's violence to misgender or alter the name of a trans person. And this stood out to me as something that, you know, we would never have said just, you know, a few years or a few decades ago that it would be an example of violence to uh, accidentally mispronounce someone's name, uh, even if they are a transgender person. And then on the right, one of my all-time favorite historical examples was the Supreme Court case for the 2000 election, Bush v. Gore, when Antonin Scalia and some of the other justices cited, uh, they, they stopped the recount in Florida because they argued that the counting of votes would cause irreparable harm to George Bush. And I think in a sense to the to the entire country uh, as, as a cloud over the legitimacy of Bush's presidency. So, I mean, to me, that's like peak example of concept creep right there. The counting of votes causing irreparable harm. Give me a break. But but you can but you can clearly see this type of thing happening in a lot of aspects of society. I mean, I picked out two political examples, but we can find, I'm sure, plenty of non-political examples. And, you know, again, maybe our listeners can even send us some of their favorite examples as well of what they perceive to be concept creep. 
yeah, what do you think about this, Manny? Yeah, no, so I think th- these examples do a good job of um, demonstrating, I think, the way that concept creep plays out for different uh, audiences. So I think, so for example, the the person, uh, Shia Diamond, um, the trans person who asked a question of Julian Castro, um, that person's probably a lay person, but also as an activist, right? And so there's there's a motivation from the perspective of an activist to, and, and I think we've we've hit this point a little bit to activate, you know, their base and people that they have uh, on their side, and to try to get them to um, care about the issues that they're being an activist about. And so I think you, you, that's the same kind of thing that's occurring um, for like an anti-vax, you know, activist who is saying this is a concentration camp, right? So they're making a similar argument. They're expanding a definition. They're engaging in concept creep so that they can get people more outraged so that they can uh, help them with whatever cause that they're a part of. And I think that that example strikes me as like that kind of thing. Now you could say the same thing about uh, Antonin Scalia and his uh, citation of like irreparable harm um, to Bush. But I think politicians have a slightly, have similar, um, um, incentives the big difference is the power that they wield right like so an activist is a representative of a particular group and in this case you know trans people are um a relatively small number of people and they represent uh uh you know she as an activist is a representing like a pretty underpowered group although you know you'll talk to turf or turf adjacent people and they'll say that you know, trans people like control the society or something. But um, in general, they don't have the kind of power that like uh, a Supreme Court justice is wielding. Um, and so I think that's that's the other thing that's different with uh, politicians. But the other thing from our perspective, you know, you and I are both researchers. So there's a separate question of like, how is concept creep occurring in um, the research literature? And is it helping or hurting? There's another article by Cascardi and Brown 2016, which came out at the exact same time as in the same issue as the Haslam 2016 paper that kind of outlines when is concept creep useful and helpful in the literature as a researcher and when is it uh, not helpful. And I think that they have some interesting points there. But I just want to flag also this other uh, audience, which is the layperson, right? Like, how often do you hear somebody say, oh, so-and-so is a narcissist? Or so, so yeah. and so is is yeah. a, I have OCD because I have to wash my hands before I eat or something, and it's like right, right. the the layperson is constantly engaging in concept creep, right? It's 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 almost just so uh, so rampant, um, and on some level, it's like they're lay, you know, like these are people who study these issues, right? So it's totally understandable that you would just kind of like fling around these words with little regard. Um, but I do think we have a, a better, we have a, a much higher responsibility, um, researchers, practitioners, politicians, and to some extent activists. I mean, especially if you're going to uh, have negative, unintended negative consequences, you're trying to activate your base, but you're also like damaging the public discourse, um, then you should think about that while you're engaging in activism. Yeah, that that's a great point. And I, I remember when friends of mine started using the word addicted to describe something that was fun and right. like 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 they you know i have a friend of mine would say oh i just got this new album and i'm so addicted to it i'm listening to it every day and uh you know similarly someone might say oh i i 
watched a movie and it had some disturbing stuff and now you know i i was traumatized by it so right. you you can you can clearly see this like you're saying the uh the the concept creep in people's everyday lives and with regards to activists you know i wonder if it's more of a challenge because in activist circles they might want to keep up the motivation to fight for progress and therefore maybe it's a bit more of a struggle to acknowledge the progress we've already made. So as we were talking about before with Will, this idea that in in many regards, things have gotten better, but we feel worse. Okay, is that something that we see in the narratives of people in the activist community that we are, you know, experiencing an unprecedented, horrible thing that is way worse than it has been in in previous eras. And maybe the kind of concept creep is going along with the continued fight for uh, whether it's social justice or whether it's, um, you know, uh, environmental quality, whatever the issue is, that activists are, in a sense, in a constant uh, fight for their cause. And maybe that makes it more difficult to see the progress we've made. Yeah, I think that's right. And the, like I said, the incentive structure is is totally wrong to admit like, oh, actually, everything's fine. You don't need to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, actually, which just just to be clear, I'm not disparaging that necessarily. The, the society that we live in has there is a role for people to play. Right. And the role of the activist is to is to constantly push for progress in the direction that that they think is the right way to go. Um, you know, we can. We can look at almost any social movement that solved any problem in the past, and it's always just there's always people who are maybe even pushing further than we landed, but those people aren't a necessary, I would argue, are a necessary component of social progress. Um, although I do think, obviously, you can take it too far. So it's just finding the right balance where um, where you might engage in concept creep to some extent, but and hopefully not in a way that leads to negative outcomes. Um, and of course, that's different than a researcher, right? So I think one of the uh, right, right, the 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 important things to think about, and I thought this was a really um, so it's uh, it's Cascardi and Brown, twenty sixteen, happened at the exact same time in the same issue as Haslam, and they basically say that concept creep is beneficial if it represents a meaningful expansion of the category. Um, and by meaningful, they mean it increases precision, it advances the understanding of that uh, that topic, and then it guides prevention. So the example they used was victimization, particularly towards children. And it turns out that a uh, victimizing instances, um, which could be like sexual abuse, physical abuse, witnessing a crime, like a violent crime occurring in front of you, even not if it doesn't apply, if, if it doesn't occur to you directly, all of these things do add up in a way that uh, influences the emotional well-being of children. And so while, uh, you know, abuse um, or, sorry, victimization has expanded and now includes things like abuse and witnessing a crime and neglect, um, that expansion has helped us to understand uh, the topic more and has right. allowed us to uh, prevent victimization of children more easily. And so they, they cited that as like a good example of a concept creep. And then the, the other one we kind of already talked about uh, the on the other side where it is unhelpful is when it's obscuring an important aspect of a concept. Right. We talked about that in terms of bullying and, and how 
you know, harassment and bullying are different and we need to maintain the distinction between them because if we don't, we've lost something meaningful about what bullying is in uh, comparison to harassment. Yeah, that's a great point. And just to bring it back to what you were saying, there's ways in which scientists might think about this versus activists versus politicians versus the the general public, like the average person. And it's it strikes me that when it comes to something that might be obscuring an important aspect of the concept like you're describing, this is probably hard to see for anyone, but I think it's just especially hard for people who are either the average person or activist or politician where, like you said, the incentive runs in the other direction. Like, how 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 often have you ever seen people, like, let's say, at a PTA meeting and they're talking about bullying and someone brought up, oh, well, this, you know, kid said a insensitive joke to one other kid one time and then someone else was well that's that's concept creep we don't want to do that it it doesn't it yeah. doesn't go in that direction it goes in the other direction of yeah. trying to and maybe that is the mark of a society that is generally trying to make progress maybe we want to expand our concepts even if it obscures the motivation is to try to meet people's needs to try to make people feel like they're included and they're respected. And so the concept creep maybe is a kind of natural extension of that. And that's not to say that it's good, but that we can, we can clearly see it going in that direction and not the other direction. I would actually like people to kind of, exercise a little bit more critical thinking about concept creep more in all aspects of our lives, whether it's in education or politics or wherever it might be. I I feel like that perspective is something that we need a lot of. Yeah. And I think um, what I loved about Will and Kurt's article is that they threaded the needle so well where it it's... um, Usually, you know, concept creep in and of itself, it has a name that sounds a bit creepy. It has a, a negative connotation. You hear about it and you get explained, uh, you know, the, the subject is, is explained to you for the first time. And very often it's kind of framed as like overreaching of the left and kind of a, it's kind of almost framed as a moral panic. Right. So that there's like this. Um, people are expanding the definitions and now nobody knows what we're talking about and, and the world's going to, to crap. Um, and I think they thread this really interesting needle where they're like, actually, concept creep is a component of moral advancement, um, but we need to negotiate with it, right? Like it's, it's something that can go too far. It's something that we, we can also like not be engaged with enough and we're not making the moral progress we need to make. And so we just have to, there's a push and pull here. Um, and I think like that's probably one of the thing, the reasons why we picked out this article for our podcast, because I feel like that's something we want to engage with. Um, in our podcast is like recognizing that things are just complicated. Um, usually a thing that is identified as being um, this like awful problem is actually like a series of a bunch of problems um, that 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 um, we just need to kind of negotiate through and figure out um, rather than kind of vilifying um, other people and a particular you know, set of uh, ideas, although I will just acknowledge like some sets of ideas are particularly pernicious. Um, But for the most part, we're just trying to like negotiate between a bunch of different um, concepts and something like concept creep has its role in moral progress, 
but also can can be taken too far and we need to think through it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, at least in terms of where I would try to make distinctions and nudge people to think a bit more nuanced and and more critically is in balancing all of our values together. You know, if, if, if harm creeps too far, if it gets too creepy, so to speak, what, what does that do for liberty and freedom? What does that do for loyalty? What does it do for the other values that are important to us? Mm -hmm. And there's also a kind of personality perspective here, like we were talking about before, this idea of those people who are particularly high in neuroticism or particularly vulnerable to negative emotions tends to be the people whose concepts creep the most. And I'm not sure that it's healthy for a society if we're trying to base our common understandings of these concepts based on what the most emotionally fragile people are thinking about them. And one one thing that has clearly happened in our in our discourse and i will say you know i we can see examples of this on the left and the right this emphasis on intent as the thing that uh that that doesn't seem to matter what matters is the impact which kind of goes against a lot of what we know about the way that people think about morals and ethics historically typically we don't say that an accidental harm is as bad as an intentional harm. This is actually based on some of Kurt Mm -hmm. Gray's research specifically with Dan Wegner looking at intentionality. Mm -hmm. But with regards to concept creep, we can clearly see evidence that people are including accidental or incidental harms as being just as bad as intentional harms. And that's probably not good for us. It's probably not good for us to conflate those two things together. And a return to thinking more about intentionality, I think would be very good for us. Yeah, I have a couple reactions. One of them is intent certainly matters to me, and I think it should matter to everybody in terms of ethics, but there is a line that could be crossed where, you know, even if you had the best of intent, but um, you dropped a bomb on a bunch of civilians, like even though you think you're doing the right thing, I, I, we still should hold you accountable, right? I mean, um, yeah, yeah. So there's still an accountability aspect to even like somebody acting with the best of intent um, can still do wrong things and should still be right. held accountable to them. Now your point more is that it, it, or to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, is more that um, for small things that don't create massive harms, um, you know, we should be more forgiving of people who do a thing um, and and they and it offends somebody or hurts somebody and they didn't intend on that outcome. And I'm very sympathetic. Like, I, ju- I just feel like we should be more forgiving in general. Right, um, right. I think an important component of being forgiving, though, is, of course, that the person is willing to say, oh, I didn't realize I had done that. I'm sorry. You know what I mean? Like, mm, okay. part, part of being forgiven is recognizing you've done a wrong even unintentionally and then feeling comfortable admitting that you've done wrong um and so i think like some something that's happened now with and maybe concept creep is part of this problem is that people feel like well that wasn't my intent and therefore i have nothing to apologize for i I, i've done nothing wrong and i think that's where you can get into like this endless war of attrition where 
I just want you to hear you say sorry. You don't think you deserve to because it wasn't intentional. So I think people will take the intentions argument to um, basically kind of subvert responsibility and accountability for behavior that did hurt people, create harm in the world. Um, and then and then it kind of turns into uh, a negative situation for everybody involved. Yeah, good point. that will conclude our first ever episode of a bit more complicated if you enjoyed the episode please subscribe to our podcast leave a friendly rating and share with a friend if you have a reaction you'd like to share with us please find us on twitter at a bit more pod or send an email to more complicated pod at gmail.com thanks for listening and join us next time on a bit more complicated